Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Here's a question. What is the most famous triangle in the world? Not the isosceles, not even the equilateral and its nice, neat angles joy of every geometry student. Arguably, it's the Bermuda, Caribbean death trap of countless shipwrecks and tales of treasure and tragedy. Just off the southeastern coast of the United States, the Bermuda has been the subject of countless investigations over the years. But did you know, here on the continent, in the heart of the upper Midwest, that we have our own version of this perilous polygon? Pack your bags, because our guest this week is Gail Socek, historian and author of the new book, The Lake Michigan Triangle, Mysterious Disappearances and Haunting Tales, published by the History Press. An expert on the history of the region, Gail's work is a deep dive, sorry, into the lost sailing vessels, aircraft, and unexplained sightings all along the upper Midwest region. I said pack your bags, but maybe instead grab your scuba gear because she's here to take us all the way down. Gail, welcome to Crime Capsule. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited about listening to what you have to say. Well, we are more excited about listening to what you have to say and about this amazing volume that you have just published. Uh, Congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to write. For our listeners who are perhaps not familiar with some of your previous work as a historian, can you tell us about just a little bit about yourself and a little bit about some of your other books as well? Sure. I've been uh, writing for many, many years. I've got a total of about 16 books out there now, but my proudest ones are the last uh, six or so I've written for History Press. Um, I've really enjoyed getting into history. I love to research. As a matter of fact, I probably end up down too many rabbit holes and should spend more time writing than researching. (laughs) But uh, Some of my previous books were on the histories of some of Chicago's greatest department stores, some of the iconic places that um, we all know here in Chicago. And then I've kind of branched out a little bit more into paranormal and other issues. Um, I have a book on hauntings. I have a book on Chicago calamities, which was also very interesting to write. And, um, you know, some of the touching on some of the major crimes in that. So uh, Chicago history has been kind of my love. It is a rich area, for sure, for those who are interested in the deeds and misdeeds yes. <laughs> of, of human souls. Uh, tell us, how did you come to write The Lake Michigan Triangle, Mysterious Disappearances and Haunting Tales? Now, you live in the area, and I have to ask, have you yourself disappeared? No, I'd like to some days, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have, a, I have a very strong history with Lake Michigan because not only did I grow up in the Chicago suburbs, so Lake Michigan was, of course, right in our backyard, but I also have a second home up in Door County, Wisconsin, right on the tip of the peninsula, overlooking what's known as Death's Door, which is a place in uh, between Green Bay and Lake Michigan that probably has the most freshwater shipwrecks of any place in the world. 
And so it was some of the maritime lore up there that really got me interested. I have a close friend here in New Orleans who has a summer house, a little cabin, like so many people do up on Door Peninsula. And he tells me that oh, it nice. is one of the most beautiful places in the entire country. He has not said anything about these freshwater shipwrecks, though, my goodness. Oh, yes. It's uh, it's covered by rocks. There's a lot of unpredictable currents. And um, it's part of the Niagara Escarpment that... Uh, we all think of Niagara Falls, but we don't realize it comes up along the um, upper level of uh, Michigan and a couple of the other states and comes down into Door County and becomes uh, the Door County Peninsula. So what was the origin for this particular volume? How did you come to write uh, these particular cases and compile them? Well, I became first interested in some of the um, aviation crashes. Um, in my day job, I work in the aviation and aerospace industry. And uh, I started researching some of the plane crashes and how odd they were compared to, you know, some relatively straightforward crashes. And that combined with the uh, maritime interests up in Door County really got me thinking about Lake Michigan. Then I had heard that people had coined the term the Lake Michigan Triangle. But when I researched it, they talked about a very, very small area of the lake. And I kind of disagreed. I felt like there's a whole lot more going on in a whole wider area. Now, we have a good number of listeners who are from the Midwest and who know this area fairly well, but for those listeners who are maybe not familiar specifically with the terrain and the geography that you're describing, can you just kind of verbally draw us a picture of the Lake Michigan Triangle itself, just for frame of reference? Yeah, um, the Lake Michigan Triangle, in my mind, goes from the base of the lake between Chicago and Indiana and all the way up to Lake Superior, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and encompasses that area. Again, the original one was much smaller. It went from, um, I believe it was Manitowoc, uh, Wisconsin, to Ludington, Michigan, to Benton Harbor, Michigan. But that's just a very, very small fraction of the lake. And as I started researching, I found that there were things happening all over the lake um, that weren't captured within that, that smaller triangle. Yeah, you have a, a diagram uh, reproduced in your book, and if I can try to describe it, it's sort of a very tall, uh, almost sort of skinny triangle where the, the two points, the sort of horizontal line is at the very top, and then they both taper down, 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 down to a single point, which is the basin, the, sort of the base of the, of the lake, as you say. It's, a, it's an unusual shaped triangle, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. It's long and skinny. Um, I, and I do talk about it in the book. I, it sounds hypocritical because I named the book The Lake Michigan Triangle, but I really am not a fan of the concept of triangles. It catches people's attention, but it's too limiting. I mean, if you have something that happens five miles outside, does that mean it's not tied to the same phenomena? So um, I use that as a starting point, but I also explain that sometimes I go outside of even the triangle I drew because something nearby happened that I think kind of ties into the activity. Sure. Nature, as they say, does not draw in straight lines, exactly. and nor, do, nor do disasters, right. I suppose, that happen uh, in and around those areas. Right. Now, you have a a wide variety of cases are in this book. You have uh, aeronautical, you have navigational, you have ocean-borne, you have some unexplained aerial phenomena, and you even have a couple of cryptids thrown in there for 
um, for for fun, you you branch out into the paranormal a little further than some of our previous authors in this particular series on the paranormal that we're doing right now. How did you decide exactly which cases to include in this particular volume? I tried to look at the things that had the the most commonality. If I saw one or two, you know, quote unquote, spooky or paranormal stories, I pretty much discarded those. But when I saw things happening over and over and over again, that's when I felt it needed to be um, brought up. And also, uh, as far as some of like the UFO things, for example, the aerial phenomena, some of those were spotted right after a plane crash or perhaps before it might be the cause of a plane crash some people have felt. So I felt like I had to kind of branch into that and at least at least give that as a possible explanation. So let's talk about those uh, those unfriendly skies, as you call them. Um, you write you write at length about the uh, the accounts of planes that are going down really inexplicably, Gail. I mean, there are just a, uh, there's no discernible reason in in so many instances of of these aircraft. Sometimes they're coming to Chicago. Sometimes they're leaving the region, but they, for for whatever reason it is, they they just either disappear or they break up in flight or they crash for no apparent um, sort of reason. You you write that in some cases uh, flight recorders are retrievable, and in many cases they are not. So why why is Lake Michigan so treacherous for aircraft? Well, that's the interesting question. I kind of call myself a, a, a skeptical believer. I mean, I think that a lot of things that are, are made to sound paranormal or are made to sound um, very unusual have logical explanations. And I always try to rule that out first when I write. Um, I noticed a lot of stories about different aircraft that went down. And when I researched them, there was a very obvious reason. There, there was nothing strange about it. Um, what I do, I read the National Transportation Safety Board reports, or before that, the Civil Aircraft Board, which preceded it. And the ones that I focused on were mostly those that the authorities could find no reason for. And um, I found those very interesting because some of them, like you said, just made no sense. I mean, these were perfectly solid aircraft and there was no reason for them to go down. Is there... Now, I'm asking as a researcher here, is there a special classification in those archives or those logs for unexplained crashes? I mean, is there sort of a red stamp that goes on them that says this is the equivalent of an aviation cold case that has yet to be cracked? No, I'm not aware of that. Um, Usually they give their opinion at the end of what may have caused it. And if it's clear it's mechanical failure, pilot error, they state that. But if they don't know, they basically end with something along the lines of, you know, not enough data to determine what caused this crash. I'm not aware of anybody doing any other follow-up. Sure. I was just thinking about a, a potential classification system that might be That'd be kind of neat to have a cold case for aviation. I like that. Maybe that's your next book. You Who go. knows? <laughs> so you write in a very vivid phrase that the waters of Lake Michigan are really none other than an aircraft graveyard. Uh, what do you mean by that? And what attempts have been made to uh, ca- 
catalog or retrieve the metallic corpses that lie in this aircraft <laughs> graveyard? Um, there are dive groups out of Michigan that are trying to um, find and catalog many of these. Um, what a lot of people might not realize is during World War II, Lake Michigan was used as a training ground for pilots. Um, it was the closest they could come to, to the ocean. Um, obviously, they didn't want to be training pilots off the coasts of the country where they'd be uh, more vulnerable to any attack. So they brought them inland and they trained them in Lake Michigan. So there are, I believe, in excess of 200 World War II aircraft that have gone into the lake through accidents and you know misfires, uh, things like that. And there are groups trying to catalog them. And then, of course, we have these civil aviation crashes that happened with no, with no explanation in some cases. So how would you characterize the quality of the atmosphere in the skies for these kinds of exercises or this training? Of course, we always think of the skies over Texas and New Mexico and Arizona as, um, what is the phrase, Kavu, clear, clear and visibility unlimited? Yes, is, that, right. is that the right one? Yes. <laughs> I forget. I, I'm, I'm probably getting it about 70% You're close, right. I think, um, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. My, um, I appreciate that. Uh, but how? what difference do we see in the the air, the turbulence, the the sight lines of the air over Lake Michigan and the surrounding area? I think the issue with Lake Michigan is that due to its geography and its its the way that it's laid out against the prevailing winds, you can get very sudden storms that come out of seemingly nowhere. Um, in In past times, it was much more critical, of course. These days, with modern navigation and modern communications, um, the pilots have a little bit more warning sometimes. But as we've seen, some of these crashes are pretty recent, so that doesn't always help. Now, you mentioned earlier that you work in the aviation field. How does your training assist you as a researcher to be able to deduce and to identify and to sort of sleuth out uh, the, the the situation in each of these cases? Well, I think it gives me, because I have a greater understanding of how an aircraft operates and about um, the company that I work for deals with civil aviation, most of the major carriers around the world. I'm familiar with the larger jets. And um, as an example, in one of my previous books about uh, Chicago calamities, a writer had talked about a crash where an engine was ripped off. And he managed to deduce uh, in trying to discover his own methods of figuring out what had gone on with it, he decided that the engine had fallen off, hit the tarmac, and bounced back over the wing. Well, it's pretty unlikely that an engine that weighs, you know, probably a, a you know, a ton would right. the tarmac bounce over the wing of a plane going, you know, about hundred and some miles an hour at that point. Um, what had actually happened is the engine ripped off, flew backwards. Um, it was still under power of its own until for a few minutes, for a few seconds, whatever. Of course, yeah. yeah. And it ripped out all the hydraulics, but it didn't hit the tarmac and bounce. <laughs> so it does give you a better still... understanding of how things can happen. That is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> that that is uh, that is really interesting. I can imagine that there is just a unique frame of mind that you are bringing to each of these historical cases, right? Which um, helps you helps you see that in in uh, really vivid ways. Now, I want to ask you the most interesting cases in your book are the ones where the aircraft disappears 
without a trace. Now, I'm not a pilot, but I know uh, through spending many years flying uh, as passenger as well as from uh, the reading I've done on the topic that this is hard. This is actually very difficult to do, to disappear without a trace in an aircraft, precisely because there is so much information that surrounds registration, flight logs, communication between pilots and navigators, air traffic control, especially for regular civilian or military flights. We're not talking drug running. We had an author on our show uh, earlier this year, E.R. Bills, who wrote a book in Texas um, about a, a vanished pilot who was suspected of having been forced into a drug running scheme. Okay, all off book, right? I mean, that we understand how, how things can disappear there. But under the normal circumstance of events, when you are flying a plane, there are dozens at the very least of people who know who you are, where you're going, when you left, when you expected to arrive, what your flight path is, et cetera, et cetera. And it is just really difficult to disappear. And I I don't mean to kind of uh, harp on this point, but I'd like to stress it a little bit. And yet you have Two cases in your book where this exact phenomenon occurred. Yeah, and it's it's not only that, but when you crash a plane into water, if you did it intentionally, it would be very, very difficult to hit the water and not leave a field of debris. Um, hitting the water at, at high velocity is pretty much like hitting cement. And, of course, planes are, are made to be lightweight. They, they're made you know, a lot of aluminum, a lot of composites. There's fuel on board that's going to rise to the surface. So it's very unusual when there's little to no debris in a crash. Even if they find some later, it's it's very odd to not find a really ma- pretty massive debris field. So you have these two cases. They're about 45 years apart. Tell us about the first one, the 1953 case of what you call the dogfight with a UFO. This happened on a, on a very cold and snowy night uh, in November of 1953. There was a Scorpion, an F-89C Scorpion jet that was um, originally assigned to Truax Air Force Base in Madison, Wisconsin. And it was on temporary assignment at Kinross in the Upper Peninsula because some of their people were in training elsewhere. And they got a phone call that there were strange lights in the sky, and also radar operators were finding some strange blips that were unidentified. So the Scorpion was scrambled to go take a look, see what the target was. Um, The ground operators on radar provided directions um, to guide the aircraft to uh, this unknown intruder. And at about 8,000 feet, uh, the pilot, um, a gentleman by the name of... um, uh, Felix Moncla reported that he spotted it and he was closing in on it. And is the radar, and he also had, I should say, he also had a passenger. He had a second lieutenant who was working as his, uh, as his radar operator. After Moncla and his radar operator said that they had um, spotted the unknown target and they were closing in on it, the radar operators on the ground watched as the two radar targets converged, as Moncla's plane converged with the unknown blip. And at some point, the two blips came together as one. 
Now that's not uncommon um, in radar because if one plane flies above or below another, they'll they'll combine for a moment, but they'll immediately separate. Well, in this case, they didn't separate. The one blip that was the unknown kept on going, and Monclo's plane had completely disappeared off radar. There was absolutely no trace of it. They were unable to raise him. And there was no last radio communication. There was no signaling that was no, given of any kind. None whatsoever. Just that he was closing in on the target, and he had it in sight. And uh, they they can't explain. I mean, if it had been a midair collision, you wouldn't assume that the other craft, whatever it was, would have been able to continue merrily on its way unharmed. There would have been some debris there, and. Uh, they were just not finding anything. How much longer did that unified radar blip last before disappearing? Was there any mention of that in the records? Um, I don't have a time frame, but it just continued uh, north towards Canada and um, eventually disappeared off the screen. I don't know exactly how long it remained on, on the screen. Sure. And no debris field from any collision there, no, so far as no, you... No, they were never able to find anything, and it just it made... Absolutely zero sense. And people tried to come up with different different scenarios, but none of them really fit. I mean, if they'd had some sort of emergency, you know, why hadn't they radioed for help? They searched for uh, several, several days by boat and aircraft. They did ground searches along the lake coastline there to see if they had landed, you know, or crashed somewhere onto the land. But they found nothing, absolutely nothing. So this was 19... 19- 53, and you write in your book that, of course, different accounts in government files of unexplained aerial phenomena are in different stages of classification or declassification right now, right? Um, so how did, how did you learn about this particular case? Had it already been declassified for public sort of viewing? Uh, I actually found it just in internet searches, a little bit about it, but very little was known about it. I had to uh, delve quite a bit deeper. But the people in the area haven't forgotten. As a matter of fact, they have uh, um, they actually have a, a memorial to the pilot. Um, and it's so it, it's not forgotten at all, but there's never been any good explanations for it. Um, Project Blue Book, actually, uh, the paranormal, or the, I should say the UFO uh, project by the U.S. government, actually was deeply involved in it. And uh, they published a report claiming that the initial target was a Canadian C-47 that had managed to wander down into our territory. But that doesn't make any sense. The Canadian government has, has strongly denied it. There was a C-47 of theirs flying that night. He denies that he was ever anywhere in the vicinity. And again, if there'd been a midair crash, that plane would have gone down too. Of course, it doesn't explain how, in the in the event that there was another aircraft in the area, a, a, a known aircraft, the first one would still have disappeared. That just doesn't right exactly. Solve it that. doesn't solve the disappearance, and it doesn't solve how a midair collision would leave one plane flying completely unharmed. So let's fast forward to 1998. Then, much more recently, our our radar has improved, our tracking has improved, our communication has improved, and yet we have another mysterious disappearance, uh, which you call the air show no-show. Yes. This one was very recent, and it was it was really um, kind of eerie. There's um, Traverse City, Michigan, has a, a wonderful cherry cap. They call themselves the cherry capital of the world, and they have a wonderful cherry fest every year. 
And as part of that, they do an air show. Um, it's a week-long event, and there's, you know, music and food and entertainment and everything. Um, and people come out from all over to see this. They have things like uh, the U.S. Navy Blue Angels. Um, and, of course. And, you know, a lot yeah. of flybys by smaller, unusual planes. And on the 3rd of July, there was an aero uh, albatross that was being flown by a, a veteran pilot, um, by the, a guy by the name of Don Schaller. And he was going to participate in the show. He had a very unusual um, single-engine jet. It was a high-performance single-engine jet that was developed in Czechoslovakia. And it was used a lot in um, Eastern Europe as a military trainer. So it was a, an interesting plane. Um, he also had a passenger in the rear seat uh, who was a flight instructor at Northwestern Michigan College. And so there were two very experienced people in the cockpit. Um, they were they both had plans for that evening. Um, it was the pilot's 29th wedding anniversary, and his passenger had a high school reunion. So they had stuff to do. They were very excited. They wanted to participate really quickly in this air show. It was a first for both of them. So while they were waiting for their flyby opportunity, they were just cruising out over Lake Michigan. And as they were talking with the air controllers for the air show, um, they indicated that they were about 27 miles out over the lake and heading back towards the airport. Um, at that time, <clears throat> the radar showed the jet about in the vicinity of South Fox Island in Lake Michigan. Um, the controllers gave him permission to head in. They asked him to call in when he was five miles out and said they'd tell him then how to enter the show pattern. And uh, after a while, the controllers realized that the albatross wasn't on the radar anymore. Um, they tried calling the pilot. They couldn't get a response. And immediately, because there were so many um, aircraft and, and things around, they were able to get a real, they scrambled a really fast response. Um, they had Coast Guard helicopters and everything, but they found nothing. And this was, you know, a beautiful, sunny day not too long ago. And um, they were very well qualified. The plane did have um, parachutes and ejection seats although nobody was clear if they were functional. But the weather was beautiful. I mean, and it was a very simple plane, a very reliable plane. Um, there's just no explanation. If they'd had some kind of an emergency, why wouldn't they have, you know, immediately radared in? I'm sorry, radioed in. Um, it, it made no sense. And they didn't find anything. They didn't, they, to this date, they haven't found the plane. They don't have any debris. They don't have any oil slicks. You know, there's... No reason. It just seemed to disappear off the face of the earth. Yeah, this one puzzled me too because the the search area was quite small. Yeah, if you yeah. think about I knew it, exactly they, where they were at. Yeah, yeah. Their last known location was so tightly prescribed that you just think. I mean, especially in the age of modern modern right, radar, right. you know, not um, that uh, for this disappearance to take place is just especially perplexing, isn't it? Yes. And there are people that will come up with explanations and say, well, this could have happened. Um, one theory was that it, because it was a single engine jet, that it could have ingested a bird into the engine and the engine failed. But the thing is, even if that happens, the pilots have plenty of time to radio. They, it's, it's not, it isn't like the engine stops and you fall out of the sky like a rock. There's a certain amount of glide ratio, even for a jet, um, there's certainly time to instigate some emergency procedures. And 
even if you take all that aside, again, a plane like that hits the water, there should be an oil slick or a debris field. Have there been any recent attempts to try to locate the the aircraft or yeah, I believe anything they're in the still past looking. few years? I believe they're still looking. Again, there's a lot of groups that do nothing but try and scour the lake for wrecks, especially aircraft. And um, I believe they're still looking, but it hasn't been found yet, to my knowledge at all. Let's turn our attention to not the skies, but the seas. And our listeners, of course, as they hear these cases, uh, they now have their marching orders if they live in the area and they <laughs> see anything suspicious sticking up out of the water. Um, they know they know who to call. But uh, let's take a look at the waters themselves. You write that the waters of Lake Michigan are a graveyard, not just for aircraft, but for boats as well. Why are those waters so treacherous? Well, a lot of it has to do with the shape and positioning of Lake Michigan. It's a long narrow lake. It's oriented very much north to south, and the shores are parallel. So it allows the waves with the wind patterns to, to hit in a, they hit, okay, here I go. <laughs> <laughs> it allows the waves to build up, hit the other shore, and there's not a lot to diffuse the waves. So they can, they can grow pretty large, and they create a lot of strange currents, like longshore currents, as they're called, or riptides. Um, again, storms can come up very, very quickly. And some people think that, you know, the oceans are so treacherous and the Great Lakes are just big ponds, but it's really not that at all. The currents and the wave patterns in the Great Lakes can be much more treacherous than the ocean. Um, again, they're in a more confined area and, uh, they can build to great heights, um, there's been some theories lately about rogue waves they've talked about mostly on the ocean, but they believe that they can exist on the lakes too. And rogue waves are waves that um, I won't go into the scientific explanation, but, but generally they can grow to very great heights, much larger than the surrounding waves, and they can just envelop a ship. So there is some theory that some of those may exist on the lake. Right. And that that may contribute to the sudden disappearances as opposed to um, different kinds of weather patterns. Now, over and over, you have accounts of vessels disappearing under all sorts of circumstances. And I, I came up with a kind of a, a taxonomy, a very brief taxonomy of kind of three main kinds of shipwrecks or disappearances um, in, in your account. You have sort of the vessels that just completely disappear and no one ever finds them. You have uh, the vessels that disappear and are later found, but in pieces, right? We know that they sank for whatever reason or there was a storm or a rogue wave. Um, but the mystery sort of lasts only a little while, okay, before it's resolved. But then you also have cases where they... Uh, uh, the circumstances of the disappearance are more human than anything else. The ship might even arrive in port, but there's no explanation why everybody is gone. Right, or the ship right. is found, but the people have disappeared. And that's right. that's perplexing, too. I mean, I have to say, Gail, um, 
I was a little spooked out by some of these accounts yeah. as I was reading. What was it like researching these where you do come across the, you know, the alleged ghost ship of Lake Michigan over and over again? It is really interesting. I mean, I keep trying to dig deeper. And um, one thing I do is I spend a lot of time in the newspaper archives for stories from the day. Um, but I, ships sink all the time in Lake Michigan or in, in all the lakes, I assume. And Certainly not as much now as they did back when navigation was in its more primitive days. But what I tried to focus on are those that are really strange. If they couldn't be easily explained away, those are the ones that I delved deeper into and tried to get a little bit more idea of what possibly could have happened. And again, for most of these things, you can come up with a list of potential things that might have happened. But it doesn't, most of them don't make any sense. And there's always a yeah, but, you know, that, that just stops it from making sense. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. have a, a few celebrated cases which are very well known. There's the Rosa Bell, which was built in 1860. You have the Kimball, which was built in 1888. Uh, it disappeared and was only found 130 years later in 2018. You have the Western Reserve and the Gilcher, which are still unrecovered. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. I was curious, with these very, very well-known cases and sort of prominent vessels, mostly trading vessels or sort of shipping vessels, um, what modern efforts, apart from the scuba divers, do we see to try to find the ones that have not yet been recovered or even sort of identified as to their general location. I would think, I'm no expert, but I would think we would have sonar, which could be useful, right? Is that is that being deployed now? I mean, what... Um, probably what, sonar is the biggest. Um, but of course, Lake Michigan is huge. I mean, it's uh, more than 22,000 square miles. And that's a lot of lake. It's also a very deep lake. Um, there's parts where the water goes down, the water depth is more than 900 feet. And again, the research vessels are going to have the same challenges, sudden weather changes, um, storms that come up. So they, a lot of them can't spend a whole lot of time out there. So most of it, from what I've seen, is very small groups, you know, groups of divers and, and small um, salvage companies that go after looking for shipwrecks. And um, of course, they're limited with their technology and their time. But there's new discoveries being made all the time. 
Sure. I mean, one of I am a huge Antarctic exploration junkie from when I lived overseas for a number of years and the sort of the polar expeditions uh, that, that came out of the UK captured all of our imaginations. But, you know, of course, earlier this year, we found the endurance, right? Shackleton's ship, um, which was a massive historic find. And uh, that was done in, in um, conjunction with a group that operated uh, remote operating vehicles, right? I mean, so we now have unmanned vehicles, which were not available at, of course, you know, a generation ago. Have those been able to dig up any discoveries on the seabed of of Lake Michigan? Is there any um, prospect of using the sort of underwater drones, you know, to, to help find these vessels? I'm not aware of that technology being used, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been. Um, the problem is, even when the shipwrecks are found, or some debris is found, it's not always easy to identify them. There's a case going on, I believe still to this day, um, one of the holy grails of uh, salvage on Lake Michigan was looking for Le Graffon, Robert de La Salle's um, vessel, and it was one of the first recorded strange disappearances in Lake Michigan. And there's a group out of Michigan that claims they have found it, but then there are just as many opposing groups of archaeologists who say they're wrong and it's not that. And this has been winding through the courts about who's who owns it, what responsibility there is, what it actually is they found. This has been winding through the courts in Michigan for something like 10 years, I believe. So and it's the location. not forward. Yeah, no, I was just going to say it's not always as straightforward as, as you would think it would be. They don't just go down and go, oh, here's that, you know, aircraft or here's that plane. Sometimes they just don't know. Right. And, of course, the locations of these wrecks are very closely guarded secrets to prevent sure. unauthorized um, treasure hunting and looting and so exactly. forth. Exactly. Otherwise, they might be stripped and, you know, just damaged beyond repair. On the bright side, Lake Michigan, the waters are very, very cold, just above freezing um, for many months of the year. And because it's fresh water, a lot of these wrecks are very, very well preserved. Um, it's not like being in the ocean where they degenerate relatively quickly. Um, we're lucky enough that when we do find these wrecks, some of them, you know, hundreds of years old, they're still relatively intact. I'd like to ask you, Gail, the same question about the ships as I did about the planes, which is you have a couple of cases in your book where uh, individuals or vessels themselves uh, disappeared really without explanation at all. And the one that the bone that is in my crawl, (laughs) let me put it that way. The one that really just stuck in my gullet as I was reading was the case of George Donner from 1937, who is a captain aboard the McFarlane was the name of the vessel. Now, my my father was a Navy man, and he saw all sorts of things uh, on his uh, ship and had all sorts of stories that he brought back from Vietnam. Um, and a story like this would, I think, have unnerved even him because of how uh, how firm was the chain of command aboard ships, right? How How just sort of tightly interlinked every part of a working vessel is and as I was reading this, I was sort of thinking of my dad and I just, you know, what would he have made out of this? Tell us about George Donner 
and and I'd have to warn our listeners, this one's weird. This one's just weird. This is a very strange story, yeah. This was one of probably my favorite stories, and I'd hope that I'd find some, you know, missing key that I could come up with an explanation, and I could not, no matter how much I researched it. Um, this happened in 1937, and the ship was the O.M. McFarland. It was a, a coal carrier, and it loaded up with uh, about just almost 10,000 tons of coal in Erie, Pennsylvania. It was headed for Port Washington, Wisconsin. And uh, the weather was decent. I mean, there was no real problem. As it went through, as the ship navigated through Lake Huron, heading towards Lake Michigan, there was a lot of ice, uh, late winter ice that was left. And it was kind of tricky navigating. It was kind of exhausting, kind of finding your way through these, picking their way through these ice fields. And Captain Donner had been at the had been at the helm for a long, long time. He was pretty tired, but they made it through the Straits from Lake, Lake Huron into Lake Michigan. And when they got to Lake Michigan, they found it relatively ice free, and, and waters were calm. The weather was decent. So Donner was exhausted, and it was his birthday, by the way. Um, he was looking for some celebration that night, I'm sure. But he was exhausted, and because the weather was calm and everything seemed nice, he was he decided that it was time to take a rest. So he handed um, he handed the control of the ship over to one of his officers and told them that he was going to take a brief nap in his cabin. But he wanted to be the one to bring it into port at Port Washington. So he said, "So wake me as you're approaching Port Washington, and I'll I'll bring it in the rest of the way." So everything was fine. As far as the crew knew, he went straight to his cabin, locked the door, and took a nap. Well, as they approached Port Washington a few hours later, um, they, uh, yeah. <laughs> as they approached Port Washington a few hours later, um, the second mate headed to his cabin to knock on the door and awaken him as he had requested, and he got no response. So he thought, well, maybe he's deeply asleep. He pounded kind of louder and and kind of he pounded harder and called out his name louder and still no response. Well, he became very concerned that maybe the captain had taken ill. So he ran and got some more crew members and they forced their way into the cabin and they found it completely empty. Not only empty, but no sign that he'd been in it at all um, since that morning. His bed was neatly made and his shaving things from the morning were carefully placed away. So it didn't look like he'd even been in the cabin, much less, you know, how is the door locked without him in there. So they immediately started a search of the ship to see if he was anywhere um, that they could find him. And after searching the entire ship, they found no trace of him. They went back, they searched the waters, they did everything they could possibly do to try and find out what had happened to Captain Donner. And they came up empty. There was absolutely no hint. It was like he had disappeared into thin air. They went into port and told the authorities, and the authorities began searching the water. He was never found. And nothing about it, nothing about the disappearance made any sense whatsoever. He wasn't suicidal or depressed. The portholes in his cabin were much too small for a human being to fit through, so he couldn't have, like, climbed out a porthole. Um, the door was locked from the inside. Now, I've heard some people say, oh, that's just not true. The door really wasn't locked. But even if it wasn't, what had happened to him? He was an experienced captain in calm water. He wouldn't have just fallen off the side of the ship, especially with other members of the crew not knowing. So it's been a mystery to this day. His body never turned up. They don't know what happened to him. He just disappeared from a presumably locked cabin. 
you know, every time I try to think of a counter explanation, like you just offered, <laughs> you know, yeah. with, uh, I think of, again, my father's experience, in, you know, um, in the Navy, uh, just none of them satisfied, absolutely none of them satisfied, right. especially when you have a, a sane, um, sober, you know, sort of experienced sailor, right, which maybe is a little bit of an oxymoron. I mean, I'm willing to grant <laughs> that. But no, I mean, when you have someone who is absolutely in command of his vessel, right, and who has no reason to disappear, who has no known sort of secret life that is that he's trying to to pursue, I mean, you wouldn't do it while you were on the open water, I mean, that just, if, if you have a secret life, you, you pursue it when you're in port, right? I mean, right so right. it just, but, none of these things really make sense. It's so strange. Yeah. And I mean, he had, he had planned on bringing the ship into port. I mean, there was nothing that indicated any kind of an issue with him. Um, it, so it, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, I've pretty much from what I've read about him and what I've been able to research, I would pretty much completely rule out suicide and as far as an accident, I mean, sure, accidents can happen, but again, this wasn't a violent storm where the boat was being tossed about or something. I mean, this was a calm, simple voyage, one that he'd made hundreds, if not thousands of times before. So it's very, very strange. And again, the fact that the body never turned up, I mean, not in every case, but in most cases, if somebody drowns, the body eventually washes up on shore. Right. And, you know, the of the counter scenarios that came to mind, I mean, okay, did, as he was going below decks, was it possible that he slipped and did fall overboard? I mean, yes, that's possible. But then you have to assume that he would have made no effort to be rescued, to swim alongside the ship, to yell man overboard, to make a commotion, uh, to get within view of whoever was on sentry duty. You know, uh, uh, like you look at the the ship itself, I mean, it's a large ship, but it's, you can see, you can actually see very well, you know, the photos that you have. It's, it's so unusual that, 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 um, that could not have happened. I mean, it just doesn't seem plausible. I mean, the even if the engines produce enough sound to drown him out, I mean, still he, like his commotion in the water would have been visible. It just, it seems like it's it's a it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle, Gail. Yeah, it had, and it had a large crew, so it's not like there was one guy at the helm and nobody watching. I mean, it was a relatively large crew. People were around. I mean, it just it was in daylight. It just it none of it makes sense. Well, um, again, our listeners know exactly what to do if they find themselves <laughs> on the open water of yes. Lake Michigan. <laughs> Keep your eye out just in case he's still yes. out there swimming. <laughs> The last case that I wanted to ask you about is uh, we have not discussed any cases that are, in fact, crimes yet. We've discussed some very strange things, but um, we have not actually looked at any which have involved criminal activity. And so I wanted to ask you about the one case in your book which has the clearest trajectory of law, order, justice, and injustice Um here and it it's a curious one because Gail, you write that in the case of Lydia Davis and the Hartzell from 1880, 
There was a crime, but there wasn't a crime. There was not a legal crime that was committed, but there was a moral crime that was committed. And even with inquests and so forth thereafter, the the boundary there was very fuzzy. And would you just tell us what happened with the heart soul? It's a sad, it's a really tragic story, and um, I'm sorry to have to bring it up because of the tragic nature of it. But it, it's important, I think, to understand what was going on in seafaring vessels at that time. And just give us a sense of what happened there. The Hartzell was a 130-foot wooden cargo schooner. And it was um, moving from, it was sailing from Port and Lance in Lake Superior at the base of the Kinawa Peninsula. And it was loaded with 495 tons of iron ore headed for the Franklin uh, Furnace Company, which is in the names, its namesake town of, on the eastern Lake Michigan coast. And it was a very pleasant trip. Um, um, it was heading for the Frankfurt Furnace Company. And on board was a woman named Lydia Dale, who was the ship's cook. She was very well loved. Um, she had previously worked for a Toledo merchant as a cook and a housekeeper and decided to try her life on the water, if you will. Um, so she kept the crew well fed and again was was well liked. She was a very happy woman by all accounts, an excellent cook. And on a Monday in October in 1980, I'm sorry, in 1880, the Hartzell sailed from the tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula in Lake Superior with this 495 tons of ore and headed for Frankfurt. As they went through, the waters were very calm. It was an uneventful trip. As they got right outside the harbor in Frankfurt, the captain decided to drop anchor and wait for the night because the harbor um, was very narrow and it was dark and he didn't really want to try and get through the the very narrow um, sandbars and shoals that were through there. He didn't really want to navigate them at night. So they dropped anchor and figured that once the sun rose, they would sail in the rest of the way in the morning. Well, around 6 a.m. that morning, a real sudden winter storm hit. Um, it was rain and snow and hail and sleet, and it started to just pound the ship terribly. It blew into a, a full-blown gale. And uh, as the waves started tossing the ship around, the crew tried to get it facing into the waves, but they were unable to. They were being sideswiped by all of this, and the ship started to break apart. Well, they were only 300 feet from shore. And uh, a young boy spotted the ship struggling right offshore and ran to get help. And pretty soon all the townspeople came to help. Um, there was a very, very steep bluff there. So it was kind of difficult for them to make their way down to the beach. But they did. They chopped down trees, tore, tore down different, you know, tore down brush so that they could make it to the beach and try and send some help to these guys, to the ship that was struggling. Um, they headed off, they sent somebody on horseback to head to a life-saving station um, at Port Betsy, which was about 10 miles away. Frankfurt had its own life-saving station, but it was manned by volunteers, and they didn't have very much equipment at all. But to let the crew know that they were getting help, they actually took burning logs and spelled out lifeboat coming on the uh, bluff, which I thought was pretty creative. Well, eventually... Um, they did get help from Port Betsy. They brought along what was known as a Lyle gun. And what these are, they were used very extensively back then. They're small cannons that shoot a line 
um, a life-saving line off, and it can shoot up to about 700 yards offshore. It's really amazing. Use- I mean, I, as yeah. I was reading your account, I thought, you know, what they've basically brought out is a harpoon cannon, right? Exactly. And, and exactly. I mean, I wasn't clear if it was shoulder mounted or if it was sort of, you know, placed on the ground. But I mean, they're firing this giant harpoon at the side of the ship in order to get a rescue line established. Yeah. That it's, it's incredible. It's ingenious. Yeah, they were like little rolling cannons. They were on big wheels and they could drag them out onto the beach. And the the explosive charge, it was a black powder charge, could shoot this line. So they could send them to swimmers or to a ship. So in this case, they were able to hit the ship and the crew secured the lifeline between the ship and the shore. And then there's a couple different ways they could evacuate the ship. The most common was what they called a breeches boy. And what it basically was was a life ring um, with a... that you could actually step into and sit into like a pair of old-time breeches, and they'd slide you across this line, sort of like zip lining today, but probably not as much fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, a little more uncomfortable yeah. and a little colder around the waistline. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but they realized that was going to be too slow, so they also had something called a surf car, which was like this little metallic cigar-shaped thing that could hold like two or three people. And it was watertight, and they could zip this along the line and send that out to the boat. So they brought the surf car out and brought a few crew members, and they, but the crew members told them that there was a woman on board. And the rescuers on shore said, well, put the woman in next, you know, women and children first, of course, so you wanted to save the women. So they went back out, took another run with the surf car, and came back and two more male crew members. And they said, okay, we've absolutely got to get the woman. Well, long story short, this went on and on and on. And the story kept changing. The woman's very sick. The woman can't come. The woman's incoherent, blah, blah, blah. But uh, as it turned out, they rescued all the men off the ship. They never put the woman onto the surf car, even though they kept promising to. And pretty soon it was too dark. They could do nothing to save her that night. What they had done is, apparently she was a very heavy set woman, and it had taken two sailors to get her up from the below decks because she was very nauseated and kind of confused and obviously shaken by what was happening. But what they did is they lashed her to the mast of the ship to keep her upright and just tied her to the mast but they never put her on the surf car. They cleared the whole ship of all the crew. But the captain said defensively, well, she's as good as dead anyhow. I could not believe it when I read that. I really, yeah. could, when I read that in your book, I just thought, no, no, surely not. Yeah. And, and yet it was yeah. indeed the case. Yeah. And the crowd on this shore was just going nuts. They were yelling and insisting that they put the woman on board. And some of the crew members said, oh, she was already dead. And there was just nothing they could do that night because it was too dark. So when the next morning arose, they went to look to see if they could help her. And the rescuers were horrified to see that during the night, the storm had torn all the masts off along with her body. There was nothing left. They did recover her body, and they were trying to be sympathetic and believe that perhaps she had died, as the crewmen told her. But on the autopsy, they found that she had drowned. So when the mast had torn off and she had been pulled into the water, she had drowned at that point. She'd been alive through all the horror of it, and they had never put her on the surf car for rescue. So let me ask you this, Gail. I mean, this is redolent of a story that would be told 
60 years later, uh, a murder on the Orient Express, where it's not one person who's yeah. guilty, the entire train car is guilty. And I'm so sorry to our yeah. listeners if I've just spoiled Agatha Christie for you, but you know, you should have seen it by now anyway. <laughs> um, you know, every single one of those men who prioritized their own safety over hers was was guilty of, of that act. And yet you write that there's the tragedy of her death. And then there's kind of the double tragedy of the fact that legally this was not in fact a crime under the laws at that time. Now, can you explain that? Yeah, it it wasn't considered a crime. I mean, there I guess it didn't fall into any clear bucket of what they had done wrong. People were very disgusted. There was an inquest that was called, but most of the crew just, rather than face all the public anger for their treachery, they just dispersed. They disappeared. And so nobody was ever held accountable for it. Um, Of course, they were scorned and, and there was a lot of public anger, but nobody ever had to pay for it. So the poor woman died of being frozen and, and drowned um, just because of the cowardice of the men that she trusted, that she served to uh, take care of. Um, the one kindness that happened is her previous employer, um, when he heard what had happened, she didn't have any family left in the, in the country. Um, and when her previous employer heard that she, what had happened and that she had died, he requested that the body be returned to Toledo where he lived, and he paid all expenses and gave her a proper funeral and burial. So she did at least have that kindness after death. But I mean, it's, she wasn't shown much kindness during her life. No, no. And I had to sort of stand up and walk away from the desk, you know, after reading that particular account, let my own anger (laughs) at what had happened to sort of, uh, you know, abate before I could resume reading. But um, it really is, it really is something. Now tell me, let me ask you a happier question question here, Gail. Um, all all these stories and many, many more are found uh, in your book. And uh, there are some surprises, shall we say, uh, in the later chapters, <laughs> which I won't yes. spoil uh, for, for our listeners. But um, if, if listeners want to learn more about you and this book, how, how should they go about doing that? Where should they find you? Um, they can either look on Amazon. Uh, my books are all listed on Amazon. Just search under Gail Socek. That's S-O-U-C-E-K. Or they can reach out to History Press Arcadia. And um, again, they're the publisher of six of my books. And um, they can get a rundown of everything I've written there. And a lot of great titles at, at History Press. I've been very very, very blessed to work with them because they're a wonderful publisher and they, they get some of the most interesting stuff I've ever seen. Well, let me ask you this last question. What are you working on now? Um, I'm kicking around right now doing a book on uh, forgotten Chicago amusement parks. Hmm. I'm pitching that right now. Um, Chicago had a ton of amusement parks. Uh, the most well-known was Riverview, but there were some that were strictly designed for people of color, or I should say strictly catered to people of color. There were some very, very ancient, uh, I shouldn't say ancient, but very old um, kind of prototypes for amusement parks. And they're, of course, they're all gone today. And I think it's a pretty interesting story about what's lost to history. Those are some happier times. Those will be a lot happier to write about. <laughs> than uh, shipwrecks and disappearances and, and lives yes. lost on the open waters. Yeah. Well, we will look yes. forward to that. 
for sure. And in the meantime, as you are, are working on that, please don't disappear on us, would you? No. <laughs> I'm very careful along Lake Michigan, I'll tell you. <laughs> I don't get too close to the shore. <laughs> right. Good deal. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. This has been a, a real pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Ben. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Gail Socek, author of the new book, The Lake Michigan Triangle, Mysterious Disappearances and Haunting Tales, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop slash crime capsule. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.